All right, guys. Hello and welcome to Grow Series, an MCAT content review podcast. So in this episode, we're going to continue with the foundational concept six of psychology and sociology. Uh, We started that a little bit in episode one. We'll get really deep into it now. So in this episode, I'm going to start with your senses. What does that mean? Hearing, somato sensation, taste, and smell. After all that, I'll conclude the episode with sleep and then talk a little bit about drugs. So it'll be a fun episode. Hopefully you learn a few things. So we'll get right into it. We'll get with sound. So with sound, you need to know that there are two things required to hear. That's a stimulus and a receptor. So when we hear, the stimulus is a pressurized sound wave and the receptor is a hair cell. So you might be like, um, what is a pressurized sound wave? How is that different from a normal sound wave? Well, an example of a pressurized sound wave is when you clap. So there's air molecules in between your hands. So when you bring them together, uh, the space between the air molecules gets a lot smaller. And with a smaller area, there's a higher pressure. So air molecules are like, oh, hell nah. They escape the areas of high pressure and they make areas of both low and high pressure. Boom, pressurized sound wave. So these pressurized sound waves come at different frequencies. And the reason you can differentiate someone's voice from their claps is because the lower frequency sound wave travels further and it penetrates deeper in your cochlea. And the cochlea is a spiral cavity in your inner ear. We'll get into it a bit later. All right, so I mentioned the stimulus and the receptor earlier, and then I mentioned the term hair cell. So the actual receptor that gets the sound is the hair cell, but the sound has a whole tour has to go through before it gets there. The first thing the sound wave hits on the journey to your hair cell is the outer part of your ear. That's called the pinna. So if you look at someone, their ears, their visible part, that's the pinna, P-I-N-N-A. After the pinna, it goes through your auditory canal. That's kind of like the highway from the outside world to the inner ear. So it goes to the auditory canal and then it hits the eardrum. And the eardrum can also be called the tympanic membrane. I'm going to call it the eardrum, but if you hear tympanic membrane, just know that means the eardrum. So the eardrum's main usage is to vibrate. The vibrations go back and forth and hit the three smallest bones in your body. Those are called the ossicles. So the ossicles include the malleus, the incus, and the stapes, and they vibrate in that order. Malleus, incus, stapes. So just know the letters are M-I-S. And a good mnemonic for this is uh, if you don't listen, you might miss something. Get it? Miss, M-I-S, ha ha ha, malleus, incus, stapes. All right, so after these vibrations, the stapes hits the oval window. The oval window, it pushes a fluid that runs in the cochlea. So earlier in this podcast, I mentioned the cochlea is a spiral cavity in your inner ear. So the stapes vibrations pushes all the fluid all the way down the spiral shape of the cochlea to the tip of the cochlea. But if it hits the tip of the cochlea, it's a dead end. So it goes out the way it came in because there's no other way to go. And it goes through the spiral of the cochlea. But this time, it doesn't go through the oval window. Remember the oval window is where it came from. Instead, it goes through the round window. So the names sound similar, oval window and round window. Just know the oval window is the entrance. The round window is the exit. So vibration enters through the oval window, does a tour around the cochlea, and then exits through the round window. So that movement causes the hair cells to move. And we finally hit the receptor we were talking about earlier. The hair cells on the basilar membrane of the cochlea move around, and that causes an electrical impulse to be sent to the brain. So a little bit more about hair cells. All hair cells aren't the same. There's some at the base of the cochlea. Base of the cochlea get activated with high frequency, And then the ones on the top of the cochlea, the apex, those get activated with low frequency. And humans can hear from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. So we depend on the location of the hair cells a lot. And that differentiation is called basilar tuning. So the location of the hair cell allows you to listen to a, a wide range of frequencies. 
All right, so we'll apply a bit of physio into real life with cochlear implants. So these help restore hearing for those that have nerve deafness. And cochlear implants, basically what they do is they take a sound and they bring it to the transmitter. And that's what you see on the outside of the skull if you have ever seen a cochlear implant. And so that sends info to the receiver inside the skull and the receiver sends information to the stimulator. The stimulator sends the information to the cochlea, bam, electrical impulse. So cochlear implants, they skip a few steps in the traditional hearing process and they just go from the microphone to the transmitter, which is, remember I said outside, then it goes to the receiver, which is inside, and then the receiver stimulates it and it goes to the cochlea, bam, you can hear. All right, so next we'll go on to somatosensation. That's basically just a fancy way of saying the sense of touch. Um, There's a few types here. There's temperature, pain, pressure, and position. So proprioception is balance and position. When you walk into a pitch black room, you're using proprioception, and we're able to sense how contracted or relaxed every muscle in our body is. So pain is otherwise known as nociception, while temperature is called thermoception. So temperature relies on a receptor called the TRYP-V1 receptor, but this receptor isn't only used with temperature. It can also detect pain. So nociception and thermoception both use TRYP-V1. And so there's thousands of these TRYP-V1 receptors on membranes like your skin. So temperature is able to change these receptors by causing a conformational change in the protein. Pain can also change the receptors, you know, the, the shape of the uh, protein. But it does so by releasing molecules that bind to these receptors when cells are broken up. So, you know, um, pain basically is caused by cells being broken up due to damage. So when those cells are broken up, the molecules from those cells being broken up, they bind to the TRYP-V1 receptors, and that's how pain changes the shape of the protein. In either case, the conformational change of a protein from the TRYP-V1 receptor is how your brain feels pain or temperature. So, of course, there's a ton of different pain and temperature receptors. We just use TRYP-V1 as an example, you know, of the process of uh, a signal being sent to your brain. So with transferring information to the brain with things like pain or temperature, there are three receptors you got to know about, A-beta fibers, A-delta fibers, and C-fibers. So A-beta fibers are the best. They're thick, they're covered with myelin, and they can just shoot a message straight to your brain. They're kind of like Amazon Prime shipping, you know, just two-day shipping real fast. And just remember, myelin, those are the insulating covers around nerve fibers, and myelin makes signals travel faster. A delta fibers, they're like three to seven day shipping. So, you know, not horrible. There's less myelin and it's a smaller diameter. So it isn't as fast, but it's not that bad. And then C fibers are like, I don't know, shipping something from like China or something. It's a small diameter. It's unmyelinated. So you have a lingering sense of pain. Kind of like if you hit your funny bone, you know, lingering sense of pain. So with somatosensation, the last thing I'll touch up on is the somatosensory homunculus. There's a part of your brain called the cortex, and inside that is a sensory cortex. Inside the sensory cortex is a homunculus. So all sensations related to touch have to do with the homunculus, and some are more sensitive than others. So you have a lot more sensation in your hand than in your back. So uh, there's a larger portion of the homunculus that has to do with your hands than your back. So we're done with touch here. We're going to move on to taste and smell. Smell is known as olfaction. It has a strong role in taste. That's why we're kind of talking about smell and taste in the same breath here. So diving right into the anatomy, there's three basic levels for smell going from the bottom to the top. You know, it goes through your nose, goes through the olfactory epithelium, the cribriform plate, and then the olfactory bulb. 
So three levels that I mentioned here, the bottom is the olfactory epithelium. So epithelial tissue lines the outer surfaces of organs like the skin. So you can kind of connect that the olfactory epithelium, it's the closest to your outer skin. So it's right, you know, above the nose and uh, the olfactory bulb that's closer to your brain. So the olfactory epithelium is directly responsible for detecting odors. It grabs the odors and it brings it through the olfactory system. And we mentioned the olfactory epithelium, the cribriform plate, and the olfactory bulb. So the next step is the cribriform plate. And this is a perforated bone that lets those cells we use for smell send the senses to your brain. So in order to send those smells to the brain, it has to pass through the olfactory bulb. That's basically a bundle of cranial nerves that goes from the brain and through the perforated cribriform plate to grab smells. So olfactory bulb, it goes from the brain. It has roots, basically, that goes through the cribriform plate. And the only job is to just grab those smell molecules and bring it to the brain. So there's thousands of olfactory epithelial cells with different receptors. So when a specific cell finds a smell molecule that perfectly fits in its receptor, it fires an action potential to that specific smell glomerulus in the olfactory bulb. So the olfactory epithelial cells work directly with the olfactory bulb. So if there's a benzene molecule that just goes up your nose, bam, it fires a benzene olfactory epithelial cell. That brings it to the benzene glomerulus in the olfactory bulb. So this is a little interesting. If you recognize the term glomerulus, you probably remember it. You know, it's a part of the kidney. Uh, in the kidney, it's a small circular cluster of capillaries. But in the brain, it's a small bundle of nerves. So the word glomerulus, how is it used both in the kidney and the brain? The word actually comes from the Latin word glomus, and that means a ball of thread. So in the kidney, that circular sphere-shaped area is called the glomerulus. And then in the olfactory bulb, it's also a circular sphere. So it's also called the glomerulus. But in the brain, the glomeruli aren't made of capillaries. It's actually made of axons, dendrites, and other neural cells. So similar concept, you know, ball of thread, but in each case, it's a different type of thread. So now we're going to jump onto pheromones. If you've ever been in a general psychology class, this word gets tossed around a lot. People think of pheromones in a mating sense a lot. Um, you know, if you're attracted to someone, it might be in part due to the pheromones. And these are like the natural smells. So chemical signals like pheromones, they can subconsciously attract you to someone. The actual definition of pheromones is basically a specialized olfactory cell. And it's a chemical signal. Basically, it induces an innate response in another person. So the key word here is innate response. Innate, you know, that means basically a natural response, kind of like an ingrained response. So pheromones are seen in mammals a lot, but they're mostly in insects and for insects, they use them for everything. So they use them for mating, communication, fighting, everything. Pheromones in mammals can also be seen pretty obviously. That's like with dogs. When they pee on something, they're marking their territory with the pheromones in their urine. So you're probably wondering, how do insects rely so much on pheromones, but humans don't? So some mammals and many insects have another olfactory epithelium and another olfactory bulb. And those are called the accessory olfactory epithelium and the surprise accessory olfactory bulb. And so within the accessory olfactory epithelium, they have the vomeronasal organ that basically detects moisture-borne odors. So for these animals, smells basically go from the olfactory epithelium to the cribriform plate to the olfactory bulb, just like normal. But instead of going to the other olfactory system parts of the brain, it actually hits the amygdala. And if you know a little bit about the amygdala, it's where we derive many emotions. And most of those emotions are pretty basic, like aggression and mating. So it makes sense that the animals that have, you know, smaller brains are more 
animalistic connect more with the amygdala. And actually, it's pretty cool because humans also have that vomeronasal organ. So they technically have the ability to hit the amygdala, but we have no accessory olfactory bulb. So it's theorized that we only use the vomeronasal organ when we were fetuses, but it isn't a sensory organ as an adult. All right, so smell has a lot to do with taste. Without smell, a large part of taste is removed. And so now we'll jump into the details of taste, otherwise known as gustation. So we have five main tastes, salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. If you've never heard of umami, it's the ability to taste glutamate. So have you ever heard about the complaints about MSG? So MSG is a pretty poppin' word. You know, a lot of people complain about it. So the reason they put MSG in food to make it taste great is it activates that umami sense. MSG is monosodium glutamate. So that kind of makes sense, right? And you might consider the word umami kind of weird, but the story behind it is pretty cool. Basically, a Japanese scientist in 1908 wanted to know why this seaweed-based soup called dashi had a really meat-like taste without having any meat in it at all. So he did a series of tests, and after that, he found this crystal structure, and it's called glutamate. So he then titled that taste, that glutamate taste, umami, for the Japanese word umai, which means delicious. So back on the topic, just remember the five tastes, salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami, and recognize that umami comes from glutamate. So in regards to taste buds, there's three locations for it on your tongue. Those are anterior, which is known as fungiform, side taste buds, known as foliate, and then back taste buds, known as circumvallate. So most of your taste buds are in the front, aka that fungiform side. Each taste bud is able to detect all five tastes by having five unique receptor cells. That means any taste can be detected on any part of the tongue. But each receptor cell that corresponds to a specific taste goes to a specific part of your gustatory cortex. The gustatory cortex is a part of your brain. It's in charge of taste. Anyways, the fact that each taste has its own VIP expressway to a different part of the gustatory cortex is called the labeled lines model. So the fact that every sense has their VIP expressway may be true, but the way that the expressway gets activated is different. So sweet, umami, and bitter senses have GPCR receptors. And the GPCR part of the GPCR receptor stands for G-protein coupled receptor. So I don't know why it's called GPCR receptor. It should just be called GPCR if receptor is part of the acronym, but I didn't make it up. So, Anyways, the other two senses, sour and salty, have to do with ion channels, which means Molecules bind to the receptors directly. So GPCRs basically require a conformational change to open ion channels, and then ion channels just go straight in. So sour and salty just go straight in. So basically an easy way to think about it, ion channels are like if you open a door, and GPCRs are like if you ask a bouncer to open the door for you. So GPCR, there's another step in the middle, and just to remind you again, GPCR is sweet, umami, and bitter and ion channels are sour and salty. So we're all done with the senses, and let's move on to my favorite hobby personally, and that is sleeping. So I personally find everything to do with sleeping and dreaming super fascinating, just because it's kind of a corner of science that has so much exploration left. You know, we can see the brain activity during dreams, and we make theories about it, but it's unknown if there's, you know, any rhyme or reasoning in dreaming. So, you know, who knows? Maybe one of you guys will find that out. You never know. So there are different stages of sleep. Before I get into the technical terms, I'll talk about what you've experienced. So there's just, you know, the plain old alert. You know, you're awake, you're alert, you're firing on all cylinders, whatever. Then there's, you know, daydreaming. You're a little bit more out of it. Some classify it as light meditation. You go down, get a little sleepier, you're drowsy. That's more like deep meditation. You know, that's like right before you go to sleep. 
And then lastly, it is sleep. So here you're straight up not aware of the world. You're not aware really what's going on around you. And this is the complicated fun part, you know? So when you sleep, your brain waves produce frequencies. They actually produce frequencies all the time, but we're going to focus on the frequencies when you sleep. It turns out those frequencies correlate to the level of sleep you're in. So when I talked about the sense of being awake, we connect that to beta waves. So once you're daydreaming, you know, like I mentioned, you're a little bit more out of it. Your brain is making alpha waves. And then that drowsiness right before you go to sleep, that aka deep meditation, that's theta waves. And lastly are delta waves, which are present when you're in deep sleep. So the thing to note is as you go down that wave staircase from beta to delta, their frequency gets lower. So at beta, we have around 13 to 30 hertz. Delta waves are only 3 hertz. So to go over it again, wide awake is beta, then it goes alpha, theta, and delta. Delta is deep sleep. So from wide awake to deep sleep, it's B-A-T-D. Beta, alpha, theta, delta. So these brain waves are really important. A lot of research focuses on brain waves and kind of correlates the level of sleep you're in and different sleeping disorders based on brain waves. So remember the order from awake to asleep, B-A-T-D, B-A-T-D, beta, alpha, theta, delta. So your brain goes through even more unique stages than just changing brainwave frequency. You go through 90 minute cycles of sleep stages classified as non-rapid eye movement and rapid eye movement. So just as you go down the stairways of frequencies, remember I mentioned before with a B-A-T-D, the order of deep sleep also goes down a kind of, kind of a staircase. So there's N1, N2, N3, back to N2, and then the deepest sleep, which is REM. So basically, you're going down the stairs of non-rapid eye movement with N1, N2, N3. You go back up the stairs of N2, but then you fall back down to REM. And that cycle happens every night while you're sleeping. So N1, N2, N3, N2, then REM. Right now, I'll jump into the ends or the non-rapid eye movement. So N1 is the first wave. It's dominated by theta waves. Remember, theta waves are those you get when you're super drowsy and you're just about to go to sleep. So you get weird things like hallucinations, you know, you feel like you're falling, and you get this thing called the Tetris effect. So the Tetris effect is when you experience what you're doing the day before. So the name came about because if you play Tetris right before you go to bed, you still imagine it. N1, you get Tetris effect, hallucinations, you're in that uh, drowsiness. N2, it's similar to N1 in the fact that you see theta waves, but N2, they also sprinkle in two new things, all right? You sprinkle in sleep spindles and K complexes. So think of this N2 stage as N2, because you're adding two things, sleep spindles and K complexes. So we add two more characteristics to the N1. So we still have the theta waves, but we have sleep spindles and K complexes as well. So we already talked about theta waves before. Remember, that's a super drowsy and low frequency wave right before the deepest waves, which are delta. But what are these two new things, sleep spindles and K-complexes? Well, sleep spindles are known for suppression. What does that mean? They basically are noise-canceling headphones. They kind of inhibit certain perceptions, and they make you go to sleep, uh, even if there's like loud noises outside, you know, annoying neighbor, whatever. Sleep spindles are what helps you go to sleep. K-complexes are also used for suppression, but they suppress cortical arousal, which means they suppress vigilance, muscle tone, wakefulness, and more. So K-complexes kind of make you relax. You know, they suppress muscle tone. They let you, your body go into that sleep state. And sleep spindles are noise-canceling headphones. So N2, it's super useful for transferring memories into those long-term memories. 
because of those amazing K complexes that we mentioned. K complexes do a ton. I mentioned they suppress things that make you awake and they kind of let you organize your mind's file cabinet. So your mind's going through the short and long-term memories and you kind of can clear that up. All right, so N3, it's the deepest step of non-rapid eye movement stages. It's slow wave sleep and it moves away from the theta waves that the other stages had. Here you kind of go into the lowest frequency and that's the delta waves. So we're moving away from theta waves, we're getting into delta waves. So on top of that, N3 is also where, you know, sleepwalking and the cool hallucinations happens. So just like N2 with the K complexes, N3 is also great at organizing your mind's file cabinet. Um, It does that by consolidating memories from short term to long term. So just know N2 and N3 really good for organizing short term and long term memories. And, you know, before I wrap up with the non-rapid eye movement stages, just remember what we talked about earlier. The staircase you go down is N1, N2, N3, and then back to N2. Then we hit the REM sleep and we hit you with the uh, deepest sleep. So it isn't really linear. There's that little pump fake back to N2. Just remember that. So now onto rapid eye movement, the REM stage. This is where you dream. This is where the cool stuff happens. So most of your muscles are completely paralyzed here. It's the very best stage for memory consolidation. I said N2 and N3 are good, but REM is the best. So the coolest part of rapid eye movement is the brain waves during it. So remember with non-REM, when we got deeper into sleep, we went from theta and then gradually down to delta and the frequencies also got lower. In REM, you aren't in theta, you aren't in delta either. You actually jump back to the waves that are present when you're awake. That's a combination of alpha and beta waves. So the reason REM sleep is known as paradoxical sleep is because if they saw your brain waves, they'd think you're awake, but your body's almost completely paralyzed and your eyes are rapidly and randomly moving. So REM sleep is super cool. You're basically awake, but you're not. So, you know, it's pretty creepy stuff. Also kind of cool. So it makes sense why dreams feel so real. So I'll also touch on the circadian rhythm before we get into dreaming. Circadian rhythm is basically a fancy way of saying your sleep cycle. So it's controlled by melatonin, it's secreted, and melatonin is secreted by the pineal gland. And the pineal gland is also pretty cool because there's a lot of conspiracies about it. Um, kind of being the third eye of your body. Some people think it's a gateway connecting you to the universe. And there's a mystical connection with lucid dreaming. So... I don't know, kind of a cool little tidbit about the pineal gland. And just remember, the main thing about it is it secretes melatonin. That helps with your sleep cycle. So speaking of sleep cycle and dreaming, let's talk talk about the theories on why we dream. So everyone dreams. Even if you say you don't dream, you definitely do. Dreams happen in REM sleep. So if you've been in REM sleep, which you have, then you've dreamt. Remember, dreaming is a different story. If you've ever had a dream that just doesn't make sense, it's because REM sleep lowers the activity in your prefrontal cortex. So REM sleep inhibits that prefrontal cortex. What does that prefrontal cortex do? It has a ton to do with decision making. It has to do with logic and just complex behavior in general. So if you have dumb dreams, just blame REM sleep, blame REM sleep for, you know, lowering the activity of your prefrontal cortex. And, uh, you know, we talked about prefrontal cortex with the MCAT prep, you're going to be going to, you know, the brain's different lobes and functions. The way I remember the function of the prefrontal cortex is the pre part of it. So before I do something big, I prepare and I make a logical plan. I use complex decision making. So the pre part of prefrontal cortex reminds me of that just as the prefrontal cortex has to do with decision making, logic and complex cognitive behavior, you use those qualities when you prepare decision making, logic, complex behavior. So prefrontal cortex, prepare. 
All right, so the most basic theory of dreaming comes from Freud. So if you know anything about psychology, you know Freud is a G. This guy has some crazy ideas. You know, he shot a shot with any concept, but he's a grandfather of the subject, so his name definitely deserves some respect, all right? So Freud thought that all dreams were actually all unconscious things that you need to address. So a common dream that people have is their teeth falling out. Freud would say that your teeth falling out is kind of a metaphor, you know, losing your teeth is like losing control. And if you lose control, you're probably in a highly stressful situation right now. So I guess a lot of people preparing for the MCAT have these dreams according to Freud. So the evolutionary perspective has three major theories. Um, Those are that you're preparing for threats you'll face in the world, theory of problem solving, and then there's another theory that there's just zero point at all. So there are three more that don't fit in with Freud or the evolutionary perspectives. First, that dreams let you be creative. Second is that dreams are just an intense way to, you know, clean up that memory file cabinet, consolidate memory, all that jazz. Lastly is that dreaming helps preserve and develop your neural pathways. So there's quite a bit of theories you got to remember for this stuff. Just focus on repetition and you'll definitely get it down. All right, so, so far the theories are kind of iffy. You know, Freud is a bit far-fetched and it seems that the evolutionary theorists are split on their decision as well. That's because nobody really knows with dreaming. They're really all just educated guesses. So now that we're done with dreaming, all that stuff, let's go on to sleep and specifically the disorders with sleep. So, you know, if you're in college, you probably heard people say they're insomniacs. You probably felt that way too. Basically, being an insomniac is having persistent trouble falling asleep. So you can take medication for it, but you can also get dependent on that and or build a tolerance up to them. So melatonin, remember we mentioned that before with the whole pineal gland, third eye, all that cool stuff. Well, a big concern is that if you take it every night to sleep well, your pineal gland stops producing as much of it. So these hormones are kind of tricky, and that's still true with sleeping disorders. On the other side of things is narcolepsy. Um, So this is various fits of falling randomly asleep, even getting into REM sleep, which remember we said was super deep sleep. And so narcolepsy seems to be genetic. It's linked to not having a certain neurotransmitter that we use for alertness. So, you know, not having that one neurotransmitter can get you, you know, into random fits of just instantly falling asleep. So if you've never seen it in person, I would highly suggest watching a YouTube video about it because it honestly sucks. You know, the YouTube video really opens your eyes on how much people have to go through just to try to live a normal life. Another brutal sleep disorder is sleep apnea, and that is super common. So apnea just means an absence of airflow. So one in 20 people can get it, and essentially you stop breathing when you're asleep. Your body sees you're not getting enough oxygen and wakes you up. You know, you gasp for air and then you go right back to sleep without realizing. And as you know, constantly waking up and falling asleep and not breathing ruins your quality of sleep. So the reason people feel fatigued from it is because you're not getting enough of that N3 sleep. Remember, N3 is the non-rapid eye movement stage three where you have delta brain waves. It's the lowest frequency. And N3 is the only one that has that delta. So if you're not having enough N3, you will feel fatigue. And then kind of similar to the topic on dreams and sleep is hypnotics. So in hypnotism, you're more sensitive to suggestion. That's just because you're more relaxed. There are more alpha waves here, but you're still awake. Remember, I said beta, alpha, theta, delta. Alpha is more like that uh, daydreaming stage. So there's two theories with how hypnotism works that you have to remember. Those are the dissociation theory. That says hypnotism is an extreme form of divided consciousness. So basically means you're kind of dissociative, you have your normal self, and then your hypnotized self. Then there's the social influence theory, which thinks that when you're hypnotized, you just do and say what's expected of you. 
So meditation is similar to hypnotism in that you're training to refocus your attention. There's alpha waves just like hypnotism, but if you're in deep meditation, you can get theta waves as well. Remember, theta waves is what is often seen as dr- in drowsiness right before you fall asleep. Alpha waves are kind of the daydreaming sense. So the brain waves during deep meditation are really kind of tiptoeing the line between awake and asleep. But instead of losing your attention and awareness like you do when you sleep, your body actually has an increase in inner attention with an increased activity in prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and more. So when you're meditating, you're really on the brink of awake and asleep, but your mind is pretty advanced. You're focusing all your attention on your prefrontal cortex, so complex thinking, cognitive behavior, and that really gets you very relaxed and aware of your surroundings and aware of yourself. So meditation is pretty cool and it clearly works. So so that will conclude our segment here on sleep, on dreaming, hypnotism, meditation. Now we'll jump into drugs. So that'll be a little fun. You know, there's a few types of drugs, the obvious ones like caffeine, alcohol, you know, there's prescription drugs, all that stuff. Today, I'll talk about how that affects you, your psychology, your mind. And um, yeah, so we'll go into it. There's a few types of drugs we're going to talk about. We have the depressants, the opiates, the stimulants, and the hallucinogens. So we'll go over them in that exact order. We'll talk about the depressants. Then we'll go into the opiates. Then we'll get into the stimulants like, you know, methamphetamine. And then uh, hallucinogens will be last. So depressants, they kind of win the you know the competition of drugs because they have the most commonly used drug in human history and that is alcohol so depressants work to chill your body out you know everything happens a bit slower it lowers your heart rate lowers your reaction time makes you think a little more slowly and um so an important aspect of alcohol specifically a lot of people don't know about is that it inhibits your REM sleep and remember how important REM sleep is that's the stage where you consolidate your memories and you dream So when someone falls asleep after a night out, they might be able to fall asleep easier, but your quality of sleep is way worse. So there's other types of uh, depressants, obviously, besides alcohol, and some include barbiturates, and those are aka, you know, tranquilizers. They reduce anxiety, they get you sleepy, but they can also decrease your judgment and your concentration. So how do they do that? Basically, they depress your central nervous system. So they just dampen your brain a bit and they aren't really prescribed as much now because they've been mostly replaced by benzodiazepines, benzos, um, and those benzos are the most prescribed depressants. So the new wave, you know, in rappers, drugs is Xanax. That's a benzo. So what is it? What does it do? It basically makes you chill out, not as stressed about things. If your house is burning down when you're on benzos, you're like, eh, who cares? Along with that, it knocks you out, makes you super sleepy, and benzos are incredibly addicting, and it happens super fast. So, um, you know, that's kind of a, a topic nowadays. A lot of people in the, the hip-hop scene are dying because of benzo addictions. So how does it work? So it lets your brain react to GABA way stronger by opening chloride channels in the brain. If you don't know what GABA is, it's basically the inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. So if glutamate is the gas pedal of your brain, GABA neurotransmitters are the brakes. So more GABA means we're pushing on the brakes a bit more. And for some people, you know, they enjoy that, but it gets incredibly addicting. Alrighty. So then we'll move on to opiates. So these can be confused as a depressant, but it's not. So opiates are a separate category. They help with pain and anxiety, but they don't work on GABA sites. Instead, they increase the endorphins in the body. So opiates 
they kind of decrease the central nervous system function. Uh, they lower your heart rate and they lower your blood pressure, but they give users euphoria. And that's why the opiate addiction is a huge problem in America right now, especially, you know, in the Appalachia area, a ton of rural areas, you know, opiates are a huge issue, especially with the overprescription by uh, physicians. But that's a separate topic. So we talked about opiates, talked about depressants. Right now we have stimulants left and we have hallucinogens left. So now onto stimulants. They include a drug many of you guys are on right now, caffeine. So stimulants increase your neural activity. So although stimulants and depressants can kind of be seen as opposites, they're not really working on the same components. So, you know, if you take one of each, it won't cancel out the effect. So if you have a coffee when you're drunk, you won't sober up. Just make you a more alert drunk person. So that's also horrible for your heart. So please don't do that. All right. So we'll go on to caffeine. We already talked about coffee and caffeine a bit. What is caffeine? What it does is it basically blocks adenosine receptors. What does adenosine do? Adenosine, it lowers your neural activity and it makes you sleepy. So if adenosine's landing zone is blocked, you don't get as sleepy. And that's all thanks to caffeine. Nicotine is another stimulant. It's an acetylcholine agonist. So it can disrupt sleep just like caffeine. It can suppress your appetite and increases your heart rate and blood pressure. Nicotine's long-term exposure is really bad for your heart. All right, the next stimulant is cocaine, aka the booger sugar. It's super intense and absolutely depletes your supply of uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin, which is why uh, people talk about how the crash is super bad. There's also a super high risk of cardiac arrest from this drug. So yeah, don't guys, don't do cocaine. Come on. All right, the last stimulant we'll go over are amphetamines and methamphetamine. Both of them trigger a huge dopamine release. They're super addictive. And uh, fun fact, Adderall is just one methyl group away from meth. All right, so the next range of drugs are hallucinogens. So I know the name doesn't tell you this, but these drugs give you hallucinations, right? Pretty surprising. And on top of that, you also get heightened sensations. So we'll talk about uh, ecstasy. It's a stimulant and a hallucinogen. Increases your serotonin and dopamine so much so that it can actually permanently damage neurons that make serotonin. Um, It can cause people to get depressed for days, weeks, or months after usage, and it can also cause serotonin syndrome, which can cause seizures, and has the potential to be fatal. Next one up is LSD. So LSD is seen as the poster boy of hallucinogens. LSD basically produces visual hallucinations, and it also interferes with your serotonin neurotransmission. So, you know, serotonin processing your brain and messes with that and its iconic hallucinations are seen a lot in popular culture nowadays and then uh the last of hallucinogens is marijuana aka the devil's lettuce aka the wacky tobacco the main chemical here is thc this heightens sensitivity to your senses while also reducing inhibition super popular uh super common And there are some bad side effects of marijuana, but there's a lot more research being done now, especially now that it's legal in a lot of states. So speaking of research, hallucinogens are now being used as a treatment method, and influential schools just like Johns Hopkins are launching psychedelic research centers. Um, It's definitely an area of increasing interest right now, and um, something we'll probably know a lot about in the next five to ten years. All right, so now we talked about the drugs. We'll talk about how they get in your system for a bit, and then we'll talk about the reward pathways in your brain with all these fancy drugs we just talked about. All right, so the ways of uh, you know entering your system. If it's oral, it'll take a bit of time to go through your GI tract. If it's transdermal, it's through the skin, so that takes a few hours. 
Inhalation goes straight to your brain, so it takes roughly 10 seconds. Alrighty, so now reward pathways. When you first experience happiness or a reward of any kind, your brain is responding by saying, you know, this was good, let's do it again. So that occurs via the reward pathway, otherwise known as the mesolimbic pathway. So your brain loves it, wants to say, let's do it again. We go through the mesolimbic pathway. So the pleasure chemical is dopamine. It's made in the VTA, the ventral tegmental area. So the VTA, it's a factory, makes dopamine and sends it to the different areas of your brain so you feel fun and happy. So the VTA sends dopamine to the amygdala for emotions. So if you're eating some chocolate, you could be like, wow, this chocolate rocks. I'm so happy I'm eating chocolate. The amygdala is what handles that happiness from chocolate. Then it sends it to the hippocampus. The hippocampus is also, uh, it responds to dopamine by forming memories. And then it sends it to the nucleus accumbens. This is responsible for motor functions and, uh, like I said, also responds to dopamine. So the VTA, it releases dopamine and receptors uptake that dopamine. The amygdala is like, dang, that was enjoyable. I liked it. The hippocampus remembers that experience. It says, let's do it again. And the nucleus accumbens says, let's take another bite. You know, nucleus accumbens, like I mentioned, is motor functions. So lastly, the prefrontal cortex that, like we talked about before, prepares you. It's complex behavior and that focuses attention to it. So just like that, we killed that second episode, an absolute truckload of content here, but I'm assuming listen to it piece by piece. So it doesn't even matter. If you could, please leave a rating for the podcast. If you want my opinion, I'd say throw a five star in there, but hey, that's just me. But on the real, giving a good rating, you know, really helps me push this podcast to more people, you know, gets the name going, brings it up in the charts when you search for it. And uh, yeah, so thank you. See you guys on the next episode.